गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालये कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय थाद भक्ताय नमो नमः सो प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग टुडे वी आर कंटिन्यूइंग विद आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स अबाउट रैडिकल पर्सनलिज्म Today we are in our eighth meeting, and we will be continuing with the topic of individuation that we started last Tuesday. Today we will have a final and second part on individuation, and the subtitle of today's lecture is the role of human emotions in the life of a sadaka. As a way of continuing with the topic of last week, that we will make some brief recap today before continuing. The subtitle of the first talk. On individuation was how to complete our personality in divine service. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned how one aspect of uh, radical personalism could be this important point of individuation, which is a Jungian notion coming from Carl Jung, which speaks about the integration of the unconscious or the complexity of the unconscious, if you will, bringing that to the conscious level and trying to deal with that. Trying to integrate that in our human personality, and something quite close to our notion of anarthanibriti that we already spoke about in terms of shadow work, individuation, and so on. In other words, the more whole we are as humans, the more whole our sadakadeha, not only in physical terms but in psychic, emotional terms, the more the wholeness of the siddhadeha will be naturally invoked eventually. So this individuation also, of course, originally is a concept outside of the scope of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism. It's not officially described in Shastra's individuation that was called by Carl Jung, but it can naturally be part of our process. It's basically another way to referring to something that is already part of our tradition. Again, as a as an aspect of bhakti, how we deal with our humanity, how we integrate. The complexity of our humanness <clears throat> in service to the divine. So we spoke about this idea of divine humanism in Raga Bhakti, our tradition, and how this Raga Bhakti can be called the path of specificity, and uh, it's extremely detailed not only in its post-liberated uh, status and all the penetration into transcendence that it offers, but also it's very detailed and specific in terms of it should be. How we deal with our present situation here and there. If that's so specific in the goal, we should learn to be specific in our particular situation. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, our humanity will put in context our spirituality. And that's the ultimate role, if you will, of humanity to contextualize our spirituality, and correspondingly also, spirituality can put in context our humanity. And the two of them help to remain sober. If you will, each other. <laughs> uh, so we need to become humans, and we need to become uh, devotional divine beings, if you will. So that's the goal. It's to, the goal is to be devotional human beings, as we say, not so much devotional superheroes uh, and this type of neurotic archetypes of something. I need to be super whatever. Hmm? Uh, so try to be a devotional human being to begin with, at least, hmm? because if not. If we dismiss our humanity, if we if we don't play the role of it even in transcendence, 
we may be dismissing Braja Krishna as well, we may be dismissing Krishna's gores, Nara Lila as well, human-like Lila, because it includes an element of humanity, of perfectly divinized, integrated humanity. So we need to learn how to include our humanity, not, not to exclude. The Lila is a very exclusive realm, but before reaching that platform of exclusivity, first we need to embrace inclusivity as sadakas in regarding to our humanity. And of course, where to begin such a monumental proje project? Well, where we are now, here as humans, again, acknowledging who we are in our particular situation, acknowledging our acquired nature, acknowledging our adhikar, our capacity and incapacities to deal with certain life situations, and on that basis, uh, express proper responsibility for our experience, who we are, what we want to experience, what we are experiencing, and how we can take full responsibility for that. And we require freedom for this, and we spoke about that also. No? Freedom is totally required for individuation to happen, although we may be terrified of being free, <laughs> but that's the price to pay, because the more, the less free you are, the less you choose to be yourself, the closer you get to the idea of impersonalism, which is again, they are the nemesis, the enemy, if you will, of radical personalism. So we also mentioned this idea, we want to attain and eternally serve the Supreme Personality of Godhead, but that will happen as much as, or as long as we develop the Supreme Personality of ourselves. Mm -hmm. What do we do with our personality so it becomes supreme? That will speak about how closer we are getting to Sri Braja Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So personal experience is, is, is paramount. We also mentioned this idea regarding the notion of Brahman, or ways of, of epistemology, ways of establishing truth, evidence for experiencing reality. And generally we speak about three types of Praman, Guru, Shastra and Sadhu, but we mentioned how Sanatana Goswami will invoke in Brihad Bhagavatamrita how personal experience is not only one of these Pramans, but the main one. Because we filter, if you will, whatever experience we have of Guru, Shastra and Sadhu and anything else through our personal experience. So it's important not to not to deny, again, our personality, our individuality, our humanity, and put <clears throat> personal experience in its proper place, which will be, in this case, the forefront wheel, if we are to conceive our vehicle in this journey as a tricycle, front wheel personal experience, and two back wheels in tradition, guru, sadhu, and scripture, shastra. And we concluded last lecture Speaking about also responsibility again, meaning, purpose, as a price to pay for individuation. Again, there is a price to pay. This is not a cheap process, a free one. There is something to give of ourselves. There is so much that we are already receiving. Nietzsche will say in this connection, we quoted him, like one's worth will be established, measured as how much in relation to how much truth you can tolerate. So... <laughs> Individuation has to do with dealing with truth, with dealing with the truth of facts, of who we are, of who we want to be, as nice as that is, as dark as it may get, dealing with truth, embracing, accepting it, and, and, remain, and, and choosing to be free, I and mean, having the freedom again to decide our own path, and to decide how we want to tread that particular path. That's the last of freedoms, according to Viktor Frankl, 
that will remain with us even when everything else can be taken away from us. Nobody can take away that from us, the freedom to choose how we want to live our lives. Mm -hmm. So it's important to take care of that. It's important to respect our individuality. We also concluded talking about that. This is respecting your individuality is not about pratishta, it's not about being arrogant, but it's a prerequisite for individuation. Honor the fact that you are an individual being, the fact that you exist as an individual according to Krishna's wish. That's something to be venerated and honored properly, humbly. And we gave some homework as usual. In this case, was uh, the idea, the invitation was to reflect about the present stage of where, where we are as human sadhaka and was the, the, the present stage we may be in, and which may be the healthiest form of individuation <clears throat> that we need to embrace in this particular chapter. And of course, trying to proceed accordingly when, whenever you, you are able to establish that. So today we have again a second part of individuation class series inside the it's a meta series inside the bigger series of radical personalism where we will be speaking about the role of human emotions in the life of a sadhaka. So it will be a continuation of the previous talk, maybe more pragmatic, more specific, practical with some examples. So let's start with the introduction to today's lecture where we will try as usual to unravel and unpack a little bit the meaning and implications of the title of today's talk, that the role of human emotions in the life of a sadhaka. So the introduction will be about actually that there is no such a thing as bad emotions, because we may we may immediately think in those dualistic terms, no? good emotion, bad emotion, how to what to do with what. So let's try to address this idea, how actually there is not such a thing called bad emotion, although we need to know what to do with our emotions. And then comes the word bad or good, the possibilities of these two. <laughs> so again, we have to find a middle point to, to, to just, how to say, address our material needs without any spiritual cultivation. That's not healthy. And just to be absorbed in material needs, everyone is doing that. That's not so difficult. That's what we call a materialistic life just addressing your material needs without considering the spiritual dimension. But cultivating spirituality without addressing your material needs, that can be equally unhealthy. That's another extreme or another side of the same coin. That can be a form of sahajism also, of trying to, of, of, of how to say, premature transcendence, when you just want to jump, make the quantum leap into the lila or whatever, <laughs> without first integrating and dealing certain with certain ingredients that are to be integrated and operate somehow properly integrated in the realm of Lila. So we have to be careful of not going to one extreme or the other of this functionality, if you will. So emotions could be considered material needs. If you want to put it like that, no problem. I have no problem with that. <laughs> material doesn't mean bad. bad. That's an important point. Sometimes we wrongly equate the notion of material with mundane. And mundane has kind of a more negative connotation. That's mundane. Material is mundane. Mundane is bad. So material is bad. <laughs> but material is not necessarily mundane. Hmm? But we could say material is... I mean, you choose to describe material as mundane and bad, or you could, we could choose to describe material as something that 
with the potential of becoming something extremely gross or something with the potential of becoming extremely spiritualized. That's materialist. What's matter? Something with the potential of becoming extremely spiritualized. Okay, that sounds a little bit more user-friendly than just something is mundane and bad, so get rid of that as soon as possible. That's not the implication. So again, because if we think like that, emotions can be termed as such material, then we will conclude get rid of all emotional expression as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. But that's not the idea, of course. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you may imagine, when we are talking about dealing with our emotions as sadhakas, we may not be able to fully integrate 16,108% every single aspect of our present personality. It doesn't mean that Krishna will reject us because of that. <laughs> but also it doesn't mean that we should go to the other extreme, which is to totally dismiss hmm, the emotional dimension, if you will, um, but actually do the needful, as, as, at least as long as we perceive the necessity, as, we, as, as long as we realize that we need to do something with that dimension of inner existence. Hmm. Again, not to absolutely overtly emphasize like preliminary psychic perfection, <laughs> as an obligatory prerequisite to devotional accomplishment. No, you can only reach perfection in bhakti if you just first became perfected in your psychic realm. We are not saying that. But we are not saying the other extreme either. Hmm? Like put them under the ground, bury them, and be transcendental. <laughs> That's not transcendence as we all speak today. So again, what to do with our emotions? Now, for one side, of course, we already know we have the emotions, we could say, going again to the extremes, if you will, the sides of the spectrum. On one side, we could say we have the emotions of the conditioned souls. Hmm? We know what that tastes like. <laughs> and also, on the other side, we have the emotions of the perfected soul, the emotions of the Siddha, the emotions of the Bhada Jiva. But what about us, who are kind of in between the two? We are not, technically speaking, conditioned souls in every sense. We have bhakti came to our life. We are sadhakas, but we are not siddhas yet. We are yet. We are not perfected beings. So, what to do with our emotions as sadhakas, as human sadhakas? Hmm? Should we tra transcend them? And by transcend here, I mean reject them. Which, of course, that's not the meaning of transcendence. But sometimes we think like that. Transcend emotions mean reject them. No, we shouldn't do that. Should we integrate them? Hmm? We, should we cultivate as much intimacy as possible hmm, with those disowned objects or aspects, not objects, aspects of ourselves that have the potential to nourish our bhakti project? Yes, hmm, that's a reply. Hmm. Try to cultivate intimacy with your emotions because probably your emotions now are disowned aspects of yourself that you need to reclaim and include, integrate, again, as part of something that has the potential to nourish your bhakti project, not only to, it's not an obstacle, it's something with potential nourishment. So yeah, in one sense we have heard, and we repeat, we are not this body, but in another sense, <clears throat> we need to get more embodied. We need to get more acquainted with our body, and body doesn't mean only physical body. We also have a psychic body, subtle, would include emotional, emotional body, so to say. So, of course, physically also we should be embodied, we should take care. And embodied doesn't mean over-identify with your body and get conditioned. Embodied means do not neglect your body. 
No, it's a vehicle, it's Sarakadeha, it's something divine, it's a gift, if you will. So physically speaking, take care of your sleep, take care of your food, take care of your health. Do not neglect your bodily needs. But also that applies to the emotional platform, which is your body also, if you will. So try to make deeper and deeper contact with what you are feeling. Try to develop that intimacy. And this may be difficult. This may be not pleasant because whatever you are feeling is not precisely ecstatic always. No? <laughs> so get in touch with your emotions. may be painful, but it's totally necessary. So yes, we need to cultivate intimacy with our emotions. So let's, let's go to this main point of the introduction, which is, again, that emotions are not negative. There's nothing, there's not such a thing called negative emotion. There are negative things that we do with our emotions. But the emotions themselves are emotions, <laughs> are neither negative nor positive. They are simply, they simply are. <laughs> so we don't need to pathologize negativity or downness or demonize or stigmatize. So this is an important point that we need to get through. Emotions are not negative. There are no negative emotions. There's a negative way of dealing with emotions. Let's give an example, you know, anger. Anger is a classical <clears throat> emotion that is quickly labeled as negative. But anger is not something bad. I mean, by saying this, I'm not promoting anger in excess, but just sometimes it comes. It's an emotion that comes. So anger is not bad, but you can express anger badly, if you will. This is a subtle difference, but it's an important one. <laughs> Healthy anger, there is place for healthy anger, which will be devoid of aggression, devoid of blaming, devoid of resentfulness, devoid, devoid of revengeful spirit, devoid, devoid of shaming. Uh, and toxic anger will be expressed in all these terms, which we call sometimes hostility. You will be hostile to some person. That's anger expressed in a toxic way. Anger is not in itself a bad thing, but you are expressing it badly <laughs> you follow my point so hostility is not an emotion in itself hostility is a negative framing an expression of an emotion namely anger in this case mm -hmm. or of course in some other cases we may not express anger negatively but we may not express anger at all so we may repress no, suppress depress Depression comes from something that you are putting down, down the, under the rough, as they say. We will speak more about suppressed emotions in the next section, but my point is, of course, to repress an emotion is equally damaging uh, as if you express that in a negative way, in a toxic way. Mm -hmm. So we, not, we don't need to exclude the angry I, well, ourselves when we get angry, but we should be sufficiently, sufficiently mature to... To include it, or to include anger in, in the equation and allow it to be expressed, but in a way that is, we are not overcome by that. I know it's not easy, I'm not saying easy, but I'm not saying impossible either. So again, in any of these cases, we are doing something with our anger. We are choosing to express anger rather positively or negatively. But it's not that anger in itself is bad or good, it is. 
So try to apply, I just gave the example of anger, but try to apply the same criterion to every other single emotion that we may necessarily experience and, and label many times negatively while they are not. Mm -hmm. or, or also try to meditate not only how many times you label something a negative when that per that emotion is just an emotion, it's not negative, but also try to meditate how many times we consider as emotions some things that actually are not emotions but are the negative expression of an emotion. Like the example I gave with hostility. Well, that's an emotion. No, that's not an emotion. That's the toxic expression of anger. Mm -hmm. Or like hatred. See, I hate that person. Oh, that's an emotion. That's not an emotion. That's anger expressed in a completely dysfunctional way. Mm -hmm. You follow? So, hatred is something you are doing with anger. It's not anger in itself. Mm -hmm. so if you go, for example, to the heart of hate, well, the person who is hating someone of, of things, he, she hates someone, you won't find hate as the original emotion in the heart of that person. Probably you find deep grief, some broken heart, that begs for healing, but it's not that hate is the original emotion there. It's anger which comes out of frustration of certain needs not being met and so on. But on the surface, of course, that takes the form of hatred, toxic hatred. And on the opposite, a healthy ex example of healthy anger, you may express your anger, and you may be in a, re in a relationship where you experience abuse of any type, and you are getting angry because of that, because I hope you are not celebrating being abused. So you may get angry, but that anger positively expressed will take you to establish healthy boundaries. For example, in that relationship and in every other future relationship that will show those same patterns. So by establishing proper boundaries, that's providing you of uh, strength and clarity in the way you interact with others. But, but you express that. So that's, that's the potential of any emotion, in this case, again, anger properly expressed. Or, I don't know, let's give it another example, an example of fear, who is another classical <clears throat> visitor to our emotional landscape. So many times we are fearful of fear. <laughs> we are afraid of something, but we don't want to, to look at that direction because we are afraid. We are afraid to enter into the shed, if you will. We know we are afraid, but we don't want to deal with the fear because we are afraid of fear. But if we stay open and present to the emotion, whatever it makes you feel afraid, you can start to track the, even the sensations of that fear rather than falling into the grip of fear by rejecting that, by looking in another direction or, or by trying to transcend, quote-unquote, that through spiritual practice. I'm fearful, okay, I will chant and I will transcend fear. But you are not transcending anything. You are becoming insensitive to what's going on. Of course, you are. it seems you are not feeling anything else anymore, but at the price of not feeling anything else anymore. <laughs> not only that emotion. So by properly opening and embracing, we will become less, less and less fearful of our fear. That's how it works, actually, by facing the dragon in another, in more mythological terms. The more you escape from the dragon, the bigger the dragon becomes. The more you look at the dragon, the more the dragon disappears. So when you remain outside, removed from your fear, not wanting to look in that direction, you are trapped by it. That's how it works, as counterintuitive as it may sound. 
That's how it works. Mm -hmm. But when you get inside of it, you cultivate some intimacy. Remember this expression, try to cultivate some intimacy with your emotions. You are no longer a prisoner. Mm -hmm. That's how the way you, for you not to be prisoner of the negative aspects of any emotion <clears throat> that we may feel is by cultivating intimacy with them, not rejecting them. So our problem in one sense could be <laughs> summarized in these words, like we lack intimacy with our emotions. As simple as it may be put and as almost impossible as it may sound in practice for some. <laughs> because many times again, most of our emotions are not precisely divine yet. So many of us give us pain, give us discomfort, uncertainty, so many things. So we many times prefer to transcend, quote unquote, them, which is evade. Mm, it's a form of numbing, numb, to be numb, numbing our negativity. Like it doesn't exist. Let's be transcendental, not pay attention to that. Mm. But such a process will keep your, all of your experiences and us as people, as persons, on the superficial level only. Your experiences, your ways of dealing with reality in a very shallow mm, way. So we won't be very interesting people, not even to ourselves. Mm. So again, we don't need to transcend our negativity in, in, in the sense of getting rid of that. But we need to reclaim our negativity. We need to embody our negativity. We need to integrate the complexity. We need to cultivate this intimacy with our emotional side. We have to integrate that as part of your being. Again, we are speaking about individuation. So individuation has to be make everything part of the individual project. Everything is ultimately personal, so it has the potential of <laughs> relating to you as a person as well. Another, another one more example, maybe before finishing this section, <clears throat> that comes to mind is that of what sometimes is called blind compassion. Of course, compassion is something very beautiful and desirable, but like with any other thing, it has its uh, toxic side as well. You can be wrongly compassionate. And you can end up in some sort of metaphysical limbo, if you will. Like, for example, what, what do I mean by blind compassion? Like when you enter a space internally of exaggerated gentleness, exaggerated niceness and superficiality that you invoke in your relationships to avoid integrating our shadow, to avoid integrating all those things that won't make you smile and put a nice face, <laughs> to avoid that make you avoid dealing with your emotions, basically. So you invoke a form of so-called compassion and being nice and compassionate with others and gentle, but it's just a facade so you don't have to face <clears throat> the dragon. Mm. So this blind compassion <clears throat> basically reduces us to what we may call harmony junkies or something. You know? like we are addicted to everything nice and perfect and we have all the one-liners slogans to reply how to say how to reply to any circumstance <clears throat> and we may even say like no no i don't want to judge anyone since that's something bad <clears throat> let's be compassionate and positive <laughs> but that's an evasive device uh, you, you, you just look for a superficial sense of harmony harmony means integration of complexity again harmony doesn't mean Everything is the same thing. Everything is one in the sense of everything is nice. No, no. Everything may be a mess. And you have to know what to do with that and create harmony out of that. <clears throat> in musical terms, harmony means different notes 
but put together in such a way that sound like a unity that is harmonious. But first you have to put together all this divergent stuff. So again, if someone thinks in blind compassion, I don't want to judge anyone, that's bad. But judging in itself, again, is not bad. Judging is one of our internal organs that help us to properly discern and move in life. This is this, this is that, or this or that. The problem is not with judgment, but again, how we ju handle our judgments. The problem is not with anger, but what you do with your anger. <laughs> so again, this brings us back to the idea of personal responsibility and what you do with those things. <laughs> it's easier to blame, oh, that's good, that's bad, instead of everything has the potential to be good or bad, but it depends on how I deal with that. That's more com committing, if you will. So when we speak about judgment, I mean, judgment is not a, a synonym with uh, condemnation. So you can judge without condemning anyone. Mm. So in this way, we should be careful of not projecting this, this false, this blind compassion mm, onto us or or onto others, and trying to keep everything on the, on a nice level, on the level of non-confrontation. Mm. Confrontation is not a bad word. Again, many of us, our blind compassion side will say. No, 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 no. Try to avoid as much confrontation as you can. But confrontation doesn't mean fighting or being toxically angry and insulting other one, but just to confront, to go in front of something and face whatever you need to be facing. For I mean, you cannot have emotional integration without confrontation. And confrontation begins at home, of course. I'm not even speaking about confront other people, but confront all that people that is inside of you, if you will, that is begging for integration. And of course that extends then to, to our relationship with other people. Because if we don't do not do that in the name of blind compassion, we don't bring people face to face with their emotions, ourselves. We don't bring people to an awareness of which are the consequences of our actions. And we prefer to remain nice to everyone. <laughs> we are actually depriving all of us of what we probably need mm. in proper integration, which comes by proper confrontation. Mm. Mm. And, and this type of integration and confrontation is actual transcendence. It's the type of transcendence we need. Mm. Another form of so-called transcendence are just like toxic expressions of that. Mm. So, so when this process is healthy mm, of dealing with our emotions in an open way, there is place for proper transcendence. Again, transcendence is not a bad word. So when this process is healthy, what has been transcended is not something excluded, but it's something that we have somehow repositioned. It's something that found its place in our life and project. It's something that we are relating to in ways that are is serving our well-being in our spiritual prospect. That's to transcend something. It's not something that I threw to the trash bin and I don't see you anymore in my life, but it's found a new place that is nourishing my own journey. It's integration, that's transcendence. <laughs> and when transcendence is unhealthy, of course, what we transcend, quote unquote, is something that has actually been excluded, not included. Excluded from our being, excluded from our well-being, and that results most, mostly in escapism, you say, escapism and... and and disconnection, mm. like, no, this doesn't serve, this is bad, this is bad. Mm. 
to healthy transcendence, what we may call individuation in this context, healthy transcendence will turn whatever it has transcended, if you will, into another aspect of our true self. It's incorporating everything as part of the project. It's not disowning stuff, things, people, but it's, how to say, recognizing everything as what we may call a reclaimed sense of I. Oh, this can be part of me. Oh, come here. Oh, part of it potential, included, integrated. That's healthy transcendence. By contrast, of course, unhealthy transcendence will turn whatever it has, quote-unquote, transcended <laughs> into more like of a disowned object, an it. It's, it's it, something that is thrown there, an object disowned, rejected, dismissed, downplayed. And again, the latter unhealthy transcendence has nothing to do with radical personalism. Actually, it has to do with the arcanemy of radical personalism, which is impersonalism. We become less and less person, less and less individuals by not learning to <clears throat> include all these aspects in our personality. So since we invoke the arcanemy of radical personalism, let's continue delving in, in, the, next, in the next section in, in one of the main facets of, of individuation. That will help us to avoid impersonalism. It's not so easy to avoid impersonalism. <laughs> and, <coughs> and that is to express our emotions and not to repress them. Because that's one of the classical situations. Not only to express them properly, but not to repress them, just in case. So let's go to this next section. Human emotions not, are not to be repressed by expressed. I will share some points, some references from our tradition and some points based in, mentioned in this nice book called Unspoken Obstacles in the path, on the Path to Bhakti by Purnachandra Swami, for those who would like to continue expanding with that reading. So emotional expression, of course, is, as you can already realize, it's not a simple thing from one day to another. It's a complex progress process. It's a gradual process. And it takes different shapes according to each person, according to the stage we may be in. And, and it's important that we educate ourselves and we acknowledge ourselves in this connection, where we are, uh, and not condemn some people that may be expressing or not expressing, even repressing their emotions in a neophyte level. And it may be okay for them to do that in that particular kindergarten stage, if you will. Sometimes I give the example of the vision of a Kanishta, a Madhyam and an Uttam, saying like, okay, uh, a Kanishta sees Shastra through the lens of his emotions. A Madhyam will see his emotions through the lens of Shastra. And an Uttam's emotions are Shastra in itself. <laughs> so in all of these cases, <laughs> uh, whatever we may be, we need to do, know what to do with our emotions. All of these people have emotions, if you will, but they, that will like, be expressed in different ways, but whatever your stage, we need to do, to know, sorry, what to do with them. So this brings to mind a concept in Sanskrit, or two concepts, Anukar and Anusar. So Anukar means imitation. Anusar means following to the footsteps, following the essence. Anu, follow, sar, the essence. Anukar means repeating what someone else is doing, kar. 
to un following the essence means someone is doing something and before doing it myself I realize I question from which place that person is doing that thing and how much it corresponds for me to do that as well or in which degree I can do that without being without doing a copy paste parrot parroting like imitation hmm? so we don't want to imitate hmm? um, of course it can happen that we imitate let's be realistic a devotee can many times as we mentioned premature transcendence sometimes devotees imitate lofty st stages of transcendence hmm? which may be not with an, with an intention but it's a form of self-cheating if you will no? and trying to be somewhere that I'm not some very beautiful divine uh, <laughs> standing positioning but I'm not there yet but something worse can happen with, and that is when my idea of transcendence is distorted and I try to imitate that <laughs> when I have a wrong picture of what does it mean to be transcendental and I try to imitate my misconception of what transcendence is about <laughs> then the, the cheating becomes even further convoluted or the mess becomes a false conception of transcendence imitated you don't want that <laughs> because if a false if a devotee strives for a false conception of transcendence and in, by, by saying this I mean an idea of transcendence devoid of feelings and emotions because again we may feel transcendental means not feeling or not being affected by emotions so that's a goal and you imitate being transcendental by not feeling anything that creates havoc that creates disaster that's that's not healthy at all mm. but some devotees unfortunately do that mm. they get this distorted notion of non-emotional transcendence as sadhakas and they imitate that as if they reach the goal if you will and they are closer to hell than heaven if you will <laughs> some devotees may feel that oh, emotions are maya mm. feeling is maya mm. So being transcendental, if emotions are maya, and being transcendental means transcend maya, then being transcendental implies having as less emotions as possible, which without maybe realizing that it's a definition that gets closer to impersonalism. There are no emotions, nonsenses, no experience, nothing, nobody to relate with Brahman. There you are. <laughs> so be careful of having a wrong notion of transcendence and relating that with being as, as emotional as possible hmm? again that's impersonalism impersonalism arises when you deny that God has senses no, that's the idea of impersonalism Brahman Brahman has no senses has no form has no anything basically they don't want to limit the absolute but they end up limiting him so much <laughs> so that's impersonalism God has no senses and senses we can extend the idea emotions the mind is the sixth sense emotions are there so if God has no senses, that's impersonalism. Then if you deny that you have senses or emotions, what's the difference? That's impersonalism as well. And you are promoting impersonalism in the guise of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which is even worse. <laughs> because officially you are a personalist, but you are contradicting your ideal through whatever you may be doing. So we don't want such a thing. Once a devotee coined this phrase, Purnachandra Goswami quotes, like religion from the neck up. No? Like the idea is that many devotees sometimes they know the philosophy, they know what to say, 
in theory, again, they performed their rituals, they finished their 16 rounds or whatever, <laughs> they followed their four regs, but they rarely exhibit any feelings. It's just neck up, no heart included in the equation. So again, many, and many devotees will fall into that, or many devotees will perceive that in an environment, they will distance themselves from the practice even because of that. I know many devotees who have left even the practice altogether because of varieties of, of impersonalism, not enough fellowship in the community, a general lack of fraternity, uh, brotherhood, sisterhood, this type of humanity, no? lack of human connection, if you will, because that's bad, that's Maya. We are to, here to transcend all that together. <laughs> That's not the idea. And, and of course, some of these forms of impersonalism can happen, will always happen. There will be always people in different stages of the process, especially if one is a novice, neophyte. We shouldn't be like, too, too surprised by seeing that. That's a point. We shouldn't also criticize extremely such situations. We may see like some initial cold turkey-like or like withdrawal symptoms experienced by a neophyte, transcendentalist, which is he's struggling for sensory in sense repression. I don't have to be cogged by this or that. But in the process of repressing his senses, he may end up repressing his emotions and his feelings and becoming like a an iron bar or something. Who is doesn't feel all those things but doesn't feel anything at all. So how you expect to eventually experience Bhava and Mahabhava and all these emotional Zenits, if you have become Rupa Goswami says in Bhaktivarasamrita Sindhu, be careful with how you deal with tiag, renunciation and all the things because it can make your heart hard like a rock. And the idea is that the heart is melting. <laughs> so in this connection, let me share a few quotes from Srila Prabhupada. Uh, since so, so we, many of us, or most of us, who are most of us, his grandchildren or children in some cases, even or somehow we have been connected with this great ambassador of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. So we can see how he himself is validating, and not only himself for sure, but he's validating the role of emo emotions repeatedly, and even in ways that you may be surprised. So let me try to share. A few quotes from his purports to the Bhagavad. Let's go to the first one, third canto, chapter 15, verse 31. He says like this. <clears throat> Depending on our level of spiritual advancement or consciousness, we can control emotions, but we should not deny them. Anger will continue even in the liberated stage. So again, we go back to the idea anger is not something bad. If it's in a liberated stage, there's place for anger. I mean, you, you pay attention in the Leela, there is anger. Radha gets angry at Krishna, for sure. <laughs> and, by, and so many other forms of that. So, of course, that's the Leela. We are not imitating, but we see there is place for all these emotions, even in the Leela, even in its highest way. So it's not that there is place there, but here is not place at all. There is place also here. Prabhupada is making that clear. He's making this important point. Depending on your level of advancement, you may be able to control emotions, but we should not deny them. He makes this difference. The emotion comes. I'm not denying it. And I may be able to 
control it, which means to not be overcome by that, to express it in a healthy way, or in some cases, I mean, it may be overcome by that. But maybe in some cases, it's better to acknowledge the emotion and be overcome than to deny the emotion altogether. <laughs> because maybe you acknowledge that, you try to deal with that, okay, you lost the battle, but at least you acknowledge the emotion. Next time, you may be able to win the battle, but if you deny all emotion from the beginning, you lost the whole battle even without fighting it. So Prabhupada makes this important point. You may be able to deal with emotions perfectly, but you never should deny them. And anger can even be in a liberated stage. So what to speak as a sadhaka, that's the point. If it's even there, cultivate intimacy with them. Don't be at war with your emotions. Let's go with the second quote that he shares in 4th canto, 10th chapter, 4th verse, purport to that. Same point, basically. He says, Dhruva Maharaj is becoming angry, overwhelmed with grief, and envious of the enemies, was not incompatible with his position as, position as a great devotee. It is a misunderstanding that a devotee should not be angry, envious, or overwhelmed by lamentation. So this was the same point even made more extreme in one sense. But making the same idea, no? It's this misunderstanding that one should not experience emotions. And the point is, what do we do with those emotions? Hmm. That's the main point, and Prabhupada is validating this over and over again. Of course, we cannot compare <clears throat> ourselves with Dhruva Maharaj. There is a difference between the anger in the Leela again, or liberated souls, and the anger of the Sadaka, but both are anger. That's the point. That's an emotion. Both are an emotion. Hmm. There is one interesting example in this connection in the story in the story of uh, Jada Bharat, who was Bharat Maharaj, then the deer, and then in the third lifetime, Jada Bharat, this Abadut, topmost devotee. And and Sukadev Goswami, this is in, in fifth canto, chapter thirteen, verse twenty-four, Sukadev Goswami says to Parikshit Maharaj in this connection, when Rahugan, the king, was insulting Jadavarat because Jadavarat was taking the palanquin but trying not to step on, on the ants. So the palanquin was not moving very fixed. So Rahugan didn't like that crooked journey. <laughs> so he started to insult Jadavarat. So Sukadev Goswami tells Parikshit, there were some waves of dissatisfaction in the mind of Jadavarat due to his being insulted by King Rahugana, who made him carry his palanquin. But Jadavharat neglected this, and his heart again became calm and quiet like an ocean. So neglected doesn't mean denied, but was not overcome by that. But he felt the emotional way of dissatisfaction, and Jadavharat is the topmost devotee. <laughs> but he was insulted, and he felt some emotion because of that insulting, but he was able to not be overcome by that. But again, he acknowledged the emotion. But he didn't let himself be overcome by it. So we are invited to that same process. Not to overreact to the emotion, not to underreact to the emotion. To react to the emotion <laughs> in a positive way. Mm. To avoid impersonalism. Again, we are speaking here in the context of how we can promote impersonalism by denying our emotional range. So we have till so far analyzed two possible reasons for impersonalism in, in connection to emotions. First, we mentioned <clears throat> this initial case of a, of a devotee, a neophyte, 
and maybe struggling to control senses and may end up repressing emotions altogether. Some form of impersonalism. And then we also share the idea of the misconception that emotions are in themselves maya and are to be rejected altogether. So the two of these can lend to a form of impersonalism. Of course, the first, in one sense, is more innocent, natural. You are neophyte, what to do, you are immature. Uh, eventually, it can be accommodated. There is hope. <laughs> in a beginner's case, of course. No, no, not as an excuse for someone who should be mature, more mature. But the second case, where you have a distorted picture of what's transcendence, and you invest yourself in that direction, that's quite more contrived and, and, and unnatural. It's like a twisted approach that is indicated a deeper spiritual problem, even psychological problem. In some cases, it may require some some therapy. <clears throat> and, and, and even going for a moment to some more sociological consideration, uh, what, something that, that Purnachanda Swami mentions interestingly, he says, well, try to understand this also. No? Krishna Bhakti in the West, at least speaking to us Western sadhakas, Krishna Bhakti, when, when, when it came to the West through Srila Prabhupada in, in its, this massive wave, it was a very interesting way of transplanting a whole culture traditional ancient culture, values, ideas to new soil, hippies and, and, and whatnot. So it's an extreme sociological phenomenon no, that takes place. Maybe he, he wonders, I don't know if ever, ever, ever it takes place in the annals of history before in such a degree. No, a phenomenon by, whereby a group, I mean, the devotees totally shunned its entire culture almost overnight. And of course, you are not able to adopt a new culture overnight either. <laughs> you follow my point? So he's mentioning if you shun your culture and you have not developed another culture, you are end up being more or less bereft of culture, some sort of cultural limbo. And guess what that spells? He said, yes, impersonalism. You are not a person, you are, have not a fixed identity, and it can lead to all this dysfunctional things and, and, and unfortunately this is not just something that happened 50 years ago in those golden beginning days but some devotees continue to replicate that time of, same type of mindset 50 years after <laughs> and in total like disjointed uh, way and connection with reality another, another similar or not maybe similar but cause for impersonalism apart from the ones we were sharing could be Let's, let's call it a gender problem. Like, for example, <clears throat> if you have a brahmachari in a temple and, and the brahmachari wants to be a paka brahmachari, very strict, whatever that word means. Be careful of the word strict. So I will refer, re, refrain sorry, refrain from glancing at any Vaishnavi whatsoever because women are maya, according to the, what the brahmachari was, so, was told his indoctrination process <laughs> so be careful oh, it's not that Maya is in you the, the, the enemy is always outside of you <laughs> victim consciousness not Kijai in this case so the Brahmacharya will refrain from glancing at any Vaishnavi restrict, restricting his vision in an attempt to control himself again this can end start in a very innocent way but to survive that process day after day month after month, year after year, 
gradually maybe that person, hopefully not, but it can happen, the person develops the habit not only to negate the particular Vaishnavi, but to negate all ladies in the, in the temple, all ladies outside the temple, and then the pattern starts to overflow and extend to negate other people, and all people, and what, what's isolation 2.0, if you will, no? But it all began in a very localized way with one specific person, but the pattern, the template, started to replicate and overflow to the point that you start negating people, relationships, emotions. And again, what, what's called, how, how that's called impersonalism. Mm. It has nothing to do with the radical personalism, with Gaudiya Vaishnavism. <clears throat> a classical, also a classical expression that comes to mind, another form of how we may be impersonal in our dealings and show that we don't care for who the other person is. <laughs> how we disregard others may be the way that when the both sometimes meet each other for the first time and immediately it, I, 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 it happened to me many times and the immediate first question is who is your guru no not who you are i don't care who you are anything about who, you, who is your guru like if it's something essential and, and all that information alone will like define the individual basically whether he has integrity, character, personal, all will depend on that particular answer to that question. I'm not saying that knowing who is your guru is totally inconsequential. It's okay, it may have some bearing, but there's no reason to place so much emphasis on that as to define the individual. Maybe it's wiser to get to know the person first and then conclude about the person, if you will. And that's the idea. Let's be more personal. Let's judge an individual on, its, on his, her own merit, not just who's your guru. Again, that's another way of impersonalism. <laughs> you are basically telling the person, I don't care for you as a person. I just, you tell me, your guru or your institution or which la institutional label you have attached to you, and that's who you are. <laughs> so in this way, we should study and, and understand our even our history as a movement to sometimes detect some of these cultural influences or whatever may be there and to better grasp uh, whatever is getting in the way of our progress as a Sampradaya, whatever we may be as individuals and, and on that basis uh, acting accordingly, proceeding accordingly. Again, trying to express our emotions, working, learning to express our emotions, not to not to repress them, to express them in a healthy context, in a healthy parameter, perimeter. As we spoke with vulnerability, you need boundaries for vulnerability to happen. No boundaries, no vulnerability. So any emotion needs its proper parameter, perimeter. But we should be careful with the, the extreme of repression, the extreme of developing probably an emotional apathy whatever resembles emotion, that's something to be, quote-unquote, transcended, again, rejected. Because by doing so, inadvertently, you are depriving yourself <clears throat> of, the, of the very goal of your practice, which is a particular emotion, <laughs> very very unique emotion. I mean, the goal of our practice is all about emotion, bhava. So let's see much we'll say, those are planets made of emotions. So how do you think that you will enter a planet with everything is an emotion if you reject all emotions to begin with as a sadhaka? There's no way you are heading towards that goal, huh? an emotional planet. <laughs> it 
do you follow my point? So emotions, again, remember, emotions are not by themselves bad, as we say in the beginning of, of today's lecture. <clears throat> it's all about what we do with them. That's what it's bad or it's good. Again, it falls, it comes to personal responsibility. But if properly engaged, and that's the, of course, the idea, if properly engaged, emotions will show their ultimate face in Ilila, where we see all this emotional gamut expressed in a very unique, perfect way. In the realm of divine love, every emotion finds its place. And we as Sadakas have to start that process of integration of our emotions till they reach that point of maturation in the Lila. It's, it's not that I'm a completely dysfunctional sadaka dismissing all emotions and suddenly one day magically I'm found in the realm of Lila in a planet of emotions and expressing all my emotions in the most perfect way. It doesn't, it, it, it begins here and now. <laughs> we have to begin here and now working on that for to, to gradually happen. So that's, that's what we should be teaching. That's what every tradition, that's what every religion should be teaching and giving permission to these two things. We should we need permission to be fully human and to be fully divine. We should give ourselves permission, but any spiritual tradition should be giving permission or better encouraging, promoting these types of, of ideas, both fully human and fully divine. And as we already mentioned, I think last class, it may be harder to be fully human for us sometimes. <laughs> Remember, we are not humans trying to be become spiritual, but we are spiritual beings trying to become fully human. And we are trying we are spiritual beings trying to become fully human in the context of spirituality, of our spiritual practice. With the, as particularly for us as Gaudias, with this prospect of the Nara Lila, where we find divinity and humanity both perfectly coexisting with each other for eternity. I mean, they don't repel each other, they don't reject each other at one point. They integrate perfectly. So we, we cannot access holiness or the divine by not developing wholeness, if you will, or, or our humanity. So we need to integrate these two. Holiness, divine, whole, wholeness, humanity. We have to make a new word, holiness. No? Including the word holy in wholeness. Or... If you want to make it simple, as we have been talking in these classes, individuation. <laughs> now, individuation has to be with, again, integrating your humanity in the context of the pursuit of uh, divinity. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, so let's conclude today's class with some brief wrapping up and final considerations about how to implement this process of individuation in our daily life. Uh, and in our unique life situation, again, we are individuals, we're humans, we are living life. <laughs> and, and we can tie this idea hmm, of proper expression of our emotions, individuation. We already talked about this with the idea of an arthanibriti, going back to a Gaudiya term. An arthanibriti, which again, an arthanibriti doesn't mean get rid of the bad stuff. Hmm? <laughs> because sometimes we are too much accustomed to conceive all the things negatively. No, negatively. An arthanibrit is getting rid of the bad stuff. No. An arthanibrit means cultivate intimacy with those non-integrated layers of your being that have the potential to become part of your personality as a sadhaka. An arthanibrit. 
think that's a much more broad and deep and real. Not unreal. I'm not creating new stuff here. That's so an Anthony Brit is not get rid of the bad stuff, but cultivate a positive relationship, intimacy with emotions or whatever has not been integrated, the non-integrated complexity. Cultivate a positive approach to that and acknowledge there's so much potential in all the things to nourish my my sadhaka journey. So that's an Anthony so we need to develop more consciousness of an Arthani Britti. When I say more consciousness, I mean better conception of an Arthani Britti, better understanding, better approach of what does it mean. Again, an Arthani Britti is not merely a byproduct of the practice. I chant and the result is the Arthas go away. I chant my rounds and all the bad stuff disappears magically or whatever. <laughs> automatically yes of course by chanting and practicing sincerely <laughs> uh, so many we are getting free from so many layers of stuff even without being aware of that but that's not all that is happening or that all that is required if you will we also need to invest our individuality so an art and liberty not only means again the byproduct of bhajana kriya or devotional devotional engagement but an art and liberty in place to engage in bhajana kriya with an awareness of the nartas that we have to deal and i already defined an artas again it's not bad stuff <laughs> but things that need to be further integrated and refined and also to be aware which form those anartas are taking in my particular stage because in different stages the same anarta will take different faces and again anarta means false value etymologically speaking art means value unart means false value if you properly deal with false value it acquires real value it's something that has the potential to prompt real value that's why you have the word anarta arta and paramarta supreme value so that's an art and liberty and again it, an art and liberty implies to deal with all stiff stuff uh, being conscious, even if an anarta seems to have retired, maybe stay, is, has mutated its form and it's requiring further integration in the next stage. Again, it's not the enemy is still there. No, don't take it like that. No, the, the demon is still attacking me. Maya still wants me to fall. But this particular layer of complexity can be still further integrated into a more refined version of itself in the next stage. It's all about how you choose to frame the whole thing and relate to that. In terms of rejecting, transcending, in that sense transcending, or integrating, inviting, and cultivating intimacy. And of course, all of this has will express itself in very individualized, personalized way. Remember that the different stages of the process that Shastra describes, let's say, Shraddha Sadhu Sangha, Bhajana Krinartani, Briti Nishta Ruchi, Shakti Prem, these are kind of generic stages that will happen, but not necessarily every person will go through all the stages and experience them in the same way. No, it's, that won't happen like that. So we need to go through all these nuanced stages and the sub stages between in the stages through radical personalism as individuals. In a very specific, individualized way, and always positively. Again, 
The process is not about negativity, and much less about negating what we still perceive as negative. No, it's about embracing, integrating, including as part of a higher equation. That's individuation, just to wrap up the idea. Individuation is all about integration of complexity. I like that quote a lot. <laughs> uh, and all this goes very close again to the idea of an arthanibriti. Get accustomed to conceive an arthanibriti as integration of complexity or shadow work, as we talked some, some class ago. Mm. And, and the goal, goal of our life is to unite ourselves in all of its shadowy nest, if you will, <laughs> with the sweet absolute. It's not about negating that, but integrating that to the point that there's a place for that uniting. Krishna is accepting us with our shadow. Mm. Mm. That's actual forgiveness, to allow yourself to be accepted in those terms. Allow for such thing to happen. Mm. Mm. Because if you are not forgiven in that sense, if you do not allow yourself for such an experience, you will never experience Krishna's infinite love. Mm. So we need and we need to know that love in us. We need to experience that love in us because that's the, the ultimate healing, the ultimate integration, the ultimate individuation that we need to go through to allow ourselves to be fully accepted. Even with some of those things that may have, may have, have not been fully integrated. But at least Krishna wants to see our sincerity in trying to integrate as much as we can in his service. And he will make up for whatever was not fully integrated yet, but not abuse, let's not abuse that and be lazy, <laughs> but do our own homework. Mm -hmm. So that's the end of the class and let's go to our homework for today. Mm -hmm. So let's meditate as homework. Let's meditate on, on those emotions that, that we feel or you feel that are probably the more stigmatized and dismissed in our Gaudiya Sampradaya, in the narrative of, of at least in some your particular experience of the Gaudiya Sampradaya, which are those emotions that are the more stigmatized and dismissed, mm -hmm. and what you can do to, ma to make a change in that. Uh, what you can do to change that, always starting at home with our individual situation, how we can contribute to that. So, of course, if there are any questions, comments, you can leave them in the thread. We will try to address them throughout the week. And tomorrow, today's sorry, next class, next Tuesday, uh, we will continue with another topic, seemingly not connected, but always in connection. We'll be starting to talk about non-dual thinking, probably in two classes minimum, maybe more. <laughs> but we'll speak about how everything is one, but never impersonal, which is important. And, and which is the connection with this class? What's the connection with non-dual thinking and individuation. Well, in these last two classes of individuation, we have been speaking a lot about our uniqueness, our diversity as individuals. So let's balance the equation now and go into the next talking about our unity and what makes us one, if you will, which is the underlying, common underlying, non-dual foundation of reality. So we will continue talking about that next uh, Tuesday. See you there. Sriman Mahaprabhu Ki Jai. Shri Gaudi Sampradaya Ki Jai, Shri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramanam Haribo Vanchakalpatarugyascha, Kripa Sindhu Pyaiva Chapa Titanam Pavanipyu Vaishnavibhyu Namo Namah.
अनंत कोटि वैष्णव वृंद की जाए गौड़ हरी बोल